91.3 KBCS Community Radio, a listener-supported public service of Bellevue College. On today's show, a KBCS interview with local journalist and author Ron Chu to discuss his new book, My Unforgotten Seattle. 91.3's Yuko Kadama moderated this discussion for a Bellevue College event last week. I met uh, Ron Chu for the first time. He probably doesn't remember this <laughs> at all. Uh, in the mid-90s, as he took a group of of people I was a part of around the Wing Luke Asian Museum and its former smaller space in the Chinatown International District. And it was a museum full of stories. It was a different take on um, what museums can do, like thoughtful exhibits that encourage the visitor to feel what it might be like to be the people whose stories are offered there and to engage in the content themselves. I was really taken with the work that went into the exhibit to connect you to the people in the Chinatown International District. And um, since then, Ron Chu's presence has been a pillar of inspiration and a like-minded perspective on what journalism or storytelling can do to connect us and to inform us and to bring us together. Um, So I don't take this opportunity lightly. Um, Ron is the author of a new book, as you know, the My Un- Unforgotten Seattle, based on his, his life experiences. He served as the editor for 13 years at the International Examiner. As you heard earlier, he was the Wing Luke Asian Museum Executive Director from 1991 to 2007, which led him to be appointed to the advisory body for the National Council for the Humanities in Washington, D.C., and he's currently the executive director of International Community Health Services. So thank you for being here today. To start off, tell me just a little bit about how you grew up. As I understand, you grew up on Beacon Hill and spent a lot of time in the Chinatown International District. Yeah. Um, well, thanks uh, again for that introduction, Yuko. Uh, now you have me wondering when did I meet you? Because I pride myself on memory. And uh, obviously doing a memoir, there's a lot of remembering. So I have to ponder on that. We can compare notes later. I um, am a baby boomer. I grew up in the era of the 50s and 60s on Beacon Hill, um, Beacon Hill and Chinatown uh, International District. So that's a little bit of my perspective. I share with people that you know, the world has changed a lot, which is the genesis of this book, was to really capture the warriors and, and leaders and people in my community growing up, because that's all changing and vanishing very quickly. But the community I grew up in was not a moneyed community. I think we often hear a lot of stereotypes uh, about the crazy rich Asians, right? Nobody I knew had any money. My father worked uh, as a waiter in one of the chop suey restaurants in Chinatown called uh, the Hong Kong Restaurant. It was the biggest of the chop suey restaurants, and he was a waiter there for many years. I also worked alongside him. My mother worked in uh, many of the sewing factories in Pioneer Square, South Seattle, downtown, and that was our world. Uh, My father made a dollar an hour working 14 hours a day without benefits, medical coverage, vacation, sick leave, none of that existed. My mother, she left the house at seven in the morning. I usually left some um, food on the the kitchen counter, 
for us and she didn't come back home till nine o'clock. So as a family, we had dinner at 10 in the evening. My sister, a couple years older than me, she was 11 at the time, basically took care of us. She cooked and made sure we were taken care of. The neighborhood was a lot more insular because it was a very segregated society at that time. So none of us went over to the east side, for example. I'd never been to Bellevue or the east side. I didn't know anybody that lived there. Or even North Seattle, I didn't know anybody there. So that, that all came a little later. But that was kind of the world I grew up in. It was a very, in some ways, sheltered uh, life, but then a very constricted life because you didn't really know any professionals. If anything, your dream, my, my mother's fondest dream is that I might find a job at the post office or that perhaps I get a job at Boeing if I reached even a little higher. But nobody thought about going to medical school or becoming a professional at any point. Wow, thank you. And then uh, you went on to Seattle Central Community College and then to the University of Washington. There's a pivotal point in the book in your life where you are at University of Washington. You're a student reporter and you apply for the editor position at the UW Daily. And tell me what happened next. So I was very fortunate. I had the chance to attend uh, both Seattle Central Community College, uh, I guess it's now Seattle Central College, it was Seattle Central Community College at the time. You know, I still had a little bit of an awakening, a uh, political awakening. Um, I took one of the early Asian American studies courses. I think it was called Sociology of Oriental Americans, something like that. But, uh, you know, I began to get some better sense of who I was and in the history. Then I went on to this uh, University of Washington. I, my fondest dream was to become a writer because I, I grew up without really seeing any role models other than Hop Singh on the TV series Bonanza, who was a cook, a uh, bit of a stereotypic character. So I didn't really see any of the people I grew up with, any Asian role models. And so at the University of Washington, I committed to becoming a writer, a journalist. And I applied for a, an editorial position at the newspaper, which I didn't get, even though I had quite a bit of experience just doing basic reporting at the newspaper. The job was offered to at least four other individuals who had not applied for the job, all of whom were white. In that time period, there were no hiring, firing guidelines, job description, anything like that. The, the editor-in-chief could hire whoever they wanted as their editors. And so when I applied, I basically was shut out and I filed a complaint with the Staff Human Rights Office. And over, after two years, um, it was a two year journey. I mean, I won the complaint and there was a small monetary settlement. They set up an affirmative action plan, the whole structure of uh, hiring and firing and all that stuff. But I left the university short of my degree and, uh, you know, I, I tried to get a job at the time in mainstream media, but just was not ever interviewed for anything. So I went back down to the community and started my community work at this newspaper, which Leslie mentioned, called the International Examiner. It was a, a newspaper founded by several business people in the international district 
at a time where the neighborhood was starting to try to re rebirth itself. And, and that's where I worked for a number of years trying to develop a career in journalism. Well, what's remarkable about that incident with the UW Daily is that a lot of students or other people who might experience similar kind of discrimination and feel outraged might not take action, you know, in the way that you did, you know, then they might be fearing consequences to their actions and their family may not approve. And, you know, after going to University of Washington and, and, and the money that's involved in that, and it could have just gone down as another story shared by students of color that makes its rounds within those social circles. But what made you decide to file that complaint and um, what difficult considerations did you need to make when you made this decision? I uh, decided to file the complaint. On a very uh, basic level, I felt I was treated unfairly. I wanted to at least have the opportunity to be interviewed for this position that I was interested in. To me, that just didn't seem right. Whether I was hired or not, just, you know, the door being shut on me like that just seemed wrong. At the time, there were some other students of color who also had applied for other editorial positions who had spoken about their frustrations. It was a Native American uh, student who applied for editorial position. He actually filed a complaint with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And his case got just sort of backlogged out of existence. He left the university before that got resolved. Luckily for me, I filed with the staff human rights office on campus. So they moved those investigations more quickly. So I saw the frustration and again, felt that myself and really wanted to do something. The other factors too were, uh, remember at the, in that time period, the early 1970s, it was a time of civil unrest. There was a larger civil rights movement happening, black power movement, Chicano movement, the women's movement. So we were all, you know, feeling that sense of kind of awakening. The, the other factor too, for me, you know, my father worked as a waiter, as I mentioned for many years at this chop suey restaurant, earning essentially a dollar an hour. And then eventually got raised to a dollar 25 and maybe a dollar 65. And he may have gotten up to $2 an hour by the time he retired. But uh, so, so you have to understand that uh, you know, in order to um, make a living, it, there's a delicate balance you negotiate between keeping your pride and then also servicing the customers in a way that prompts them to give you a tip, right? So I saw my dad navigate that uh, in, in a way that uh, gave me a sense of pride. He never groveled when people didn't treat him with respect. And remember again, in that time period, you know, people didn't necessarily call you by your name. They called you boy. They spoke down to you. Everyone was named Charlie, you know. And I, I mean, I won't say that that was the majority, you know, attitude towards the uh, Chinese waiters. But I saw a lot of that uh, as a child growing up. Because remember, I started working there when I was age 13. Back then, you no know, child labor laws. You just went to work, right? But, you know, that gave me a sense of confidence, I think, that 
whoever you are, you deserve the right to be treated with respect. So, uh, you know, I didn't hesitate in filing a complaint because that just seemed like the thing to do. My mother, in contrast, she, uh, she was deathly afraid somebody was going to kill me. I know my dad was very proud that I spoke up. My mother was just afraid that, yeah, somebody was going to kill me. Neither of them had the opportunity for an education. My mother had grade school level education in China, in the village. She never had a chance to advance beyond that because uh, she went straight into working in the sewing factories when she came here. And then my father had maybe a couple years of education. I don't think he completed his high school. I'm sure he didn't complete high school. It may have just had a little bit of middle school education. It was a bit of a, it was a hard time, you know, going through that complaint uh, in those two years, because my case was held up in the press as the, the student challenging the First Amendment. So you can imagine who's going to lose in that discussion. And the professors in this uh, the communication school had also posited, well, you know, maybe he was or wasn't treated fairly, but, you know, it'll all work itself out in the end. And we don't want to threaten the First Amendment right of the press to be able to speak freely because that's a cherished thing. And then I'm thinking, well, shoot, I just want to be interviewed for this job and something doesn't seem right here. And then the consequences were big because you essentially, um, as I understand from the book, didn't come away with a University of Washington degree. And then you were having a difficult time getting interviews at places where you were applying for work, right? Yeah. So let me explain that a little bit, uh, Yuko. I... Um, was, I think it was three credits short of getting my bachelor's degree in communications. The one course that I needed to take was a reporting course, reporting requirement. Essentially, you go out and uh, do an internship at a weekly community newspaper. And during that era, uh, in the 1970s, uh, there are all kinds of weekly publications, little mini shopping newses that maybe had a few news articles and all ads classified ads to, you know, weekly neighborhood-based newspapers. By that time, I was already volunteering at the International Examiner in Chinatown International District. I was actually the editor, so I was doing all the stories and stuff. But because that publication wasn't on the list of approved, sanctioned publications, that work I was doing couldn't count towards my degree. So, I was in a catch-22, you see. If I left the newspaper, left my community, and went to work in North Seattle or East Side, which I had never been to, for some shopping news, I could have graduated. So I chose to stay at the paper, and I went back for a number of years asking whether they would let me get my degree. I never got it. So I finally left the university, I think it was 1975, 76, I can't remember. I applied for jobs at Seattle Times. At the time, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer was the other big mainstream newspaper. There were a number of other publications. 
I apply for jobs in city government and at Metro working in PR positions. I may, I think I even applied to several community colleges for, for jobs. I just needed a job. I wanted to get out of the restaurant. Uh, I've been working there for 10 years. Nobody would grant me an interview. So I stayed in the community and my life pretty much has been centered there uh, till present day. Wow. All right. So uh, a life impacting uh, event there. Later, you became, well, actually, before we go to the next question, um, and then how did you finally get your degree from the University of Washington? Uh, 30 years later, Wing Luke's niece was uh, working part-time at the museum, because by, by that time, I had become director of the Wing Luke uh, Museum. She told me, hey, I've been talking to Betty, her aunt, uh, Wing Luke's younger sister. We've been talking about, we should nominate you for an alumnus award at the University of Washington. I said, no, no, don't, I, don't do it. I, I'm not interested. And he said, well, why? We, we're already starting to prepare the paperwork. I said, no, don't do it. Then finally, they were, uh, Cynthia, the niece, was insistent. And I said, Cynthia, I don't have a degree. I'm not a graduate. I never graduated from the University of Washington. She said, well, well, why not? I didn't know that. I said, well, I don't publicize it. But yeah, I never got my degree. And then she began to ask, well, how, what happened? And then I explained and she said, my God. You know, I said, just drop it. It's, you know, you know, to me, that was part of the past. I didn't want to revisit it. Uh, it was not the most pleasant period for me. But she insisted. So one day the chair, the new chair of the communication school said, Ron, I want you to come up here and we're going to give you your degree. So I went up there and got my degree. I didn't have to do anything. I just went up there and signed my name. I brought my kids who were fairly young at the time. And, you know, it was kind of a, it was a, it was a, it was kind of a strange moment. I went up to the daily office, the manual computers are all gone. It's like, because remember, I grew up in a different era. We were typing out stories on manual typewriters. And it was strange not hearing, you know, the clacking of uh, typewriter uh, keys. Well, thank you. So uh, later, as you mentioned, you became the executive director of the Wing Luke Asian Museum. Before we get into talking more about the museum, I want to note that the Wing Luke Museum was in dire financial straits. Um, as I uh, hear, it was $150,000 in the hole. And um, the International Examiner had been in financial straits too when you had, when you had been the editor. I see a pattern here, you know, a couple of organizations that you take on that are in financial straits. Uh, a lot of people would run from taking over an organization like that. Were you worried about the financial situation or about your financial situation? Well, remember, uh, I grew up in such tight economic situation that uh, to me, it wasn't really daunting. I, I've always lived very, very modestly. I've always followed my passion. I think that's the, the one takeaway that I would offer to all of you as students as well, who are listening that uh, you, know, you follow a passion, things will work themselves out because you'll be motivated to do the things that you care about, right? 
So chasing money is always illusionary. Uh, and I've seen that throughout my career. But when I joined the Wing Luke Museum, it was actually upon the urging of Betty Luke, Wing Luke's younger sister. Uh, she knew what I had been doing as sort of a community organizer, documenting things in the community ethnic media realm. She said, well, why don't you apply for this job? I said, uh, I don't know why anybody hired me. I don't have any museum experience. No, just, you know, we, we're in pretty difficult straits. And we feel that your perspective about organizing community and getting buy-in from ordinary people would, you know, might take us in a fresh direction. Now, at the time, the museum was more of, I would say, an Asian folk art museum and not an Asian American museum. It also was a very small historical society, mostly volunteer run. So I applied and to my surprise, I was hired. But my first task was then, well, so what do we do? How do we activate this place and make it a place that people care about and are willing to participate in? And so we created our first exhibit, 1992, was on the 50th anniversary of the Japanese American incarceration. And I said, well, let's do an exhibit that mobilizes this community to share their stories, an intergenerational exhibit that would be curated, not by a subject specialist with special training, but by community elders, student activists, people who were um, uh, passionate and, and deeply connected to the issue. So the first exhibit we did, it took about a year to do. And there were a lot of skeptics. They said, well, you got to spend like years to research. And I said, no, no I'm a, remember, I'm a journalist. You know, Yuko, yeah, I mean, you got to turn to the story, right? So you got to get this exhibit up. So this exhibit, which was created in about a year, which involved active participation of over 100 people from the community. People said, that's insane. How are you going to organize this? And I said, well, trust me, you know, people will create committees because our community knows how to create committees. They don't like just somebody at the top telling them what to do. So it's, you know, it's a little bit of the strategy of how you do this. But we raised more than the entire budget of the museum and we rescued it from the brink of closure simply on the basis of this community organizing model of a museum which is centered on the stories of people and not on the objects that you might accumulate. There were objects, but they, they played a different role, you see. We flipped things around. It was also based on the notion of how do you create a museum that speaks to issues? So, so once you move away from the objects, then you're looking at, so where's the conversation leading us? How can we be of service in healing the community and moving it forward on uh, critical issues like civil liberties, on racism, on how people act and react in times of war. So that really started my journey, a uh, 17-year journey in museums. And of course, as you mentioned, I'm now in healthcare. So I've had three big lives, uh, one big chunk in journalism, second one in museums, and the third in community healthcare. And they're all actually linked. Um, you know, if you, if you buy my memoir or somehow get a, <laughs> the good fortune to, to get that free copy of the book, you know, I delved down in 
a little deeper into those stories. I also tell the stories of people who, who made a huge difference, who often uh, people uh, don't see because history is basically about what, what people write about and who you write about. So Ruth Ann Carose, who I know is not a stranger to Bellevue College, and a woman named Karen Saraguchi, I credit with the redress movement for Japanese Americans, because they were the ones that actually moved the issue on a grassroots level. In looking backward and then creating this book, My Unforgotten Seattle, was really to just surface the stories of the restaurant workers who I grew up with, including my father, the, the, the sewing women in those dozens of factories who helped create Seattle and made Seattle what it is. The people who are really, people look past. To me, that, that's my world. And those are the important people that I think um, make history and need to be acknowledged and recognized. Thank you for bringing up the women that were behind the redress of the incarceration of the Japanese American community, 110,000 people uh, incarcerated during World War II, um, because we do usually hear the names like Minoru Yasui, Gordon Hirabayashi, and Fred Korematsu, and I hadn't heard as much about the women behind the movement. So thank you for bringing that out. In, in terms of the exhibits at the Wing Luke, could you maybe talk about one of your favorite exhibits and how it was done so that people can get a sense of how the storytelling can take place, you know, outside of, say, journalism where it's in print in a, in a place where you experience it? Yeah, maybe I'll focus on the garment workers exhibit, for example. That was an exhibit that won quite a few awards. It was in on display in year 2001. There also is a, a video documentary, which you can literally walk through the exhibit. It was documented by Shannon G, who is now, uh, I believe, head of the Seattle channel. The genesis of that exhibit on garment workers was a number of protests that were happening at the University of Washington. Students were protesting some of the sweatshop labor that went into this, uh, many of this, the sweatshirts and so forth that were being sold in the store. And so that was in the media. And there were some folks talking, well, hey, maybe you should cover, do something on that. And so I reflected on it, spoke to my staff, and we realized that, well, this sweatshop industry overseas actually used to be in Seattle. It all got moved overseas with NAFTA and some other economic circumstances that drove the jobs overseas. We realized that our mothers, our aunts, our grandmothers, all the women in our community worked in these sewing factories. I mean, everybody. We just turned around the room. Well, hey, is your mom still working there? No, she retired, but, but I have an aunt working there. You know, so to us, it made sense to focus on the local stories of those people who helped develop Seattle into what it is today. Because you can even go in Pioneer Square today and you can see the faded lettering of a lot of you know, places that used to make 
gloves and boots and outerwear and ski clothing. Most of that's vanished now, but my mother herself, she worked in, at the Seattle Glove Company, at Far West Garments, at Sportcaster, at Seattle Quilt Manufacturing Company, at Rafi's. These are all places that you know, all the women in our community worked at. And there weren't simply Chinese-American women. Japanese-American women were there too. African-American, Filipino-American, Native American women. Um, we did some, uh, so I enlisted the help of the Seattle Public Library in trying to research some other interviews that had been done so we could have some basis for research. And so, so they helped us do a little bit of, you know, just looking through the literature and articles and magazines. We couldn't find a single interview of a woman, a worker in this industry until, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember, it was 1990s or something. This is an industry that gave birth to Seattle. You know, after the Alaska-Yukon gold rush, Seattle basically became the outerwear manufacturing capital of the Pacific, of, of the Northwest, because it was outfitting all these folks going up to Alaska. We couldn't find a single interview these are like hundred thousands of people and nobody bothered to interview anybody. So we said, well, let's interview our own community. And so, so that, that was the genesis of the project. Then how do we tell that story? You have to actually see Shannon's video because then you can actually physically see it. But we did interviews. We projected interviews onto fabric. We, uh, you know, did a whole series of interviews that, you know, were projected onto different surfaces. Um, and we embedded all these stories into a physical display area where we actually recreated a garment, uh, a sewing factory floor. Uh, we, we went into, I think Filson's was still operating at the time. And they may still be operating. They were one of the last of the niche uh, sewing um, companies. So we got, you know, sewing machines and, you know, cutting machines and, you know, fabric and all kinds of stuff. We basically recreated the whole environment of what it would look like. And then we interviewed a lot of women and often we, you know, interviewed in group settings. There was a, a group of women that got together to play mahjong all the time. And so Said, well, can we talk to you before your mahjong session? So we brought them food and so forth. And it must have been eight of them. They're all talking over one another, but it was quite moving. Uh, it, it created an exhibit that was very powerful. You know, it was the first time anybody had ever talked to them. You know, um, at first their response was, why would you want to talk to me? You know, because that notion we have of who's important, who isn't. Uh, you know, we also then were able to explode some myths, you know, because people think, well, it's this unskilled kind of, you know, low paid job. Well, low paid doesn't mean unskilled. It, to operate these industrial grade sewing machines with precision, with, without injuring yourself, without having the kind of uh, normal breaks you would have in a more regulated industry, you know, you had to be good. You know, so it's really, again, exploring current issues because, you know, the sweatshop labor, you know, we didn't have resources to go overseas and cover it, 
But in our own backyard, you could tell the story of what that industry is about by talking to people in your own community and then lifting them up and sure, you know, ensuring that their place in history is, is recognized. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the first exhibits I had seen at, at uh, the Wing Luke Asian Museum. And I was struck by even walking in um, as someone had recorded the sounds inside one of those uh, garment factories and it was playing. So as you're walking through the, you know, the tubs of, of material and seeing these images of these women and hear, and getting close enough to hear some of what they're saying, um, you'd have that sound going on in the background and it, it was a really striking experience. Yeah, and if I could add, you go, as you exited that exhibit, there are different textures and spaces you entered. As you exited, you had this sort of um, kind of mock store, kind of like a gap uh, store uh, um, sales area where you had garments, you know, on mannequins with little sales tags. Well, we we decided to rather than have just random garments, we had the garments that these women sewed on display on these mannequins with little, rather than a sales tag, each tag had a story, you see. So it would say, I sold this at such such factory. I made $1.25 an hour, et cetera, et cetera. But these were, these were the actual ski jackets and outerwear that many of these women made. So it was to really, again, you know, people, when they shop, they don't think about the hands that made these garments in the same way that when I wrote my book, there's a whole section on the Hong Kong restaurant where I work, Chop Suey Restaurant. Well, people think about their food. They don't think about the people who serve them. So I said, well, no, I mean, I'll write a little bit about the food. But that's really only so I could tell you the story of the Filipino dishwasher or the Chinese waiter who had a dream of going to Vancouver and becoming a hairdresser and escaping his life in Chinatown. I'm all about the stories you see and flipping it around so that you, you actually recognize the humanity of what's behind these things that through mainstream eyes, you don't see at all. And in closing, and as we're talking about stories and how you bring out the stories of the people around us that, that, are, that we don't see in the media that we, just, you know, oh, that's the person that does this is kind of how it's referred to. What would you recommend we think about as we consume this frenzied media, you know, during this heated election time? Um, what would you, what would you recommend? Yeah. You know, people ask me often, I'm surrounded by a lot of younger folks and I serve as a mentor to a lot of younger folks. I, I tell them, I don't go out to protest much anymore these days. You know, it's not really my time anymore. Uh, I'm in a different place. I'll support you if you need me for something. I'll, I'll support you because I want you to be successful. But I, I want you also to to dream a little bit and, and be involved for the long game because the short game isn't going to get you there. Um, we tend to, in this era be very impatient and we were impatient back in my day as well but over time 
good things happen when you're persistent. And I saw that, uh, for example, with the redress movement, when Karen Saraguchi and Ruth Ann Carose were working on some of the lobbying on a very basic level, to the organizing and so forth. People said redress, you're crazy. Monetary redress for Japanese Americans for this thing that happened 50 years ago. There's no political will for this, you know? And they said at very best, you might get a government apology. Okay, so they got the government apology, but they also got monetary redress for every single living, surviving person who was incarcerated. That, that was huge. It, it was a big lift, but they were in for the long haul. I know there's a lot of talk um, uh, about other kinds of redress for other uh, communities of color uh, that were, have been impacted. They said, you're crazy. You're going to provide redress for these Native American groups that have, uh, you know, who's going to pay for it? No, who's going to pay for it. You're crazy. African-American slavery, that's long ago. Who's going to, well, you know, things are possible. You follow your passion and you embed yourself in a movement where there's some other folks who believe as you do in those same things, you could change the world. Uh, I've lived long enough to see that. And again, that's why I wrote the book, you see, because a lot of people don't know all this stuff. That, you know, they, they think something popped up. Uh, and even the redress movement, they think, well, and I, you know, Ronald Reagan signed this redress. Or, and even some folks like Senator in Norway or Norman Mineta and all these other elected officials. And, and I'm not trying to discredit other people's roles, but you know, ine inevitably when you really get down to it, they're usually um, some folks behind the scenes. They're often women who, who made it happen and we forget them. And I, you know, I was eyewitness to a lot of this stuff and saw that happening and unfolding. And being a journalist like you, Yuko, you know, you, you kind of want to document this stuff because no one's going to know. So that, that would be my advice is uh, take your time, be impatient, but take your time because things don't happen right away. Thank you. Thank you, Ranchu. Um, it is such a pleasure to talk with you about uh, your work. And I would imagine that there are some questions from the students. I'm going to bring Jordana Maciel into this now, and um, we will be taking questions from the students. Um, hi, everyone. Um, I would like to invite any students that have any questions or, in, or any other person who's here. Um, we've been having a really good conversation here in the chat. I would like to, to say like here, uh, President Gary Locke talking about how his mom worked alongside your mom in those garment factories. And she was a waitress for a while in the Hong Kong restaurant. Thomas Zhu um, has his hand raised. So please, Thomas, go ahead. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, yep. you can. Yeah, hi, Ron. So uh, I've been reading your book. Um, and just really relate to the part that you mentioned your grandfather's journey as well as your father's journey because they both have uh, you know living experience in mainland China. I am actually a Chinese national, um, and I have been seeing this whole new generation of Chinese immigrants. You know their living style, their their um, understanding of social issues in America, and I found that there's this detachment 
of this generation's understanding um, of Asian American living and your father or grandfather's generation's understanding. Um, I guess my question is, how do you see, you know, this difference between way of living and ideology between the current generation of Asian Americans or, you know, new immigrants and what can new immigrants or, you know, newer generation uh, Asian American to do, uh, do to, you know, sort of bridge this gap or better understand the current situation? Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Thanks for that question, Thomas. Um, I think that uh, in order to move forward, uh, it's important that we connect the experiences. Uh, the, you know, the, the life of my father uh, was different from the life of my grandfather. Um, I like to think that things over time get a little easier. Um, the life that I lived is probably different from the life that uh, more recent uh, immigrants uh, have. Um, and again, I like to think that maybe the current generation has things hopefully a little easier than, um, than my generation. Although if you look politically, there are a lot of challenges which both sh shock and surprise me in terms of wh where we're potentially headed because the conversation the xenophobia, the, you know, the China virus stuff just takes me startling back, startlingly back to uh, a time that I thought was past us. Um, but I think um, uh, how we move forward as a community is going to be much different. Um, there, there was uh, in my era, uh, uh, multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions uh, developed to move forward issues. Um, it's a much more diverse uh, community. And just speaking about Chinese American community, it's way more diverse. Because when I was growing up, everyone was from, uh, spoke the same dialect and was same, same cluster of villages in China. Now, now you have Chinese uh, from um, Vietnam and uh, Laos and Cambodia and different parts of China, Taiwan. Uh, so it, it's, you know, it's, it's much more complex, but I think the foundation of our moving forward as a community really rests on understanding the history. Um, I talked about, you know, my grandfather coming here illegally because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, and then my father coming as a result of that. And, you know, I lived under this sort of shadow of uh, are being discovered as most Chinese Americans of my generation did. So parents didn't tell you about who you're exactly related to and a lot of details and then, you know, it's a disjointed kind of thing. I worry for and think about uh, a lot of the, the, the dreamer generation, a lot of the folks who have been, you know, kind of marginalized because of the fact that, you know, you create impacts on them. Uh, emotional and otherwise. Um, and, and overcoming that will be a challenge. Uh, it'll be a continuing challenge. And it's one that I experienced even in my generation. So I'm going to pass the word to, to Leslie. So she can... Thank you.
thank you so much for coming and giving us this wonderful talk. And um, uh, I really appreciate the authenticity of the storytelling. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. KBCS Music and Ideas. I'm Zachary Brady. You've been listening to a KBCS interview with Ron Chu, local journalist and author of his new book, My Unforgotten Seattle. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.